This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. We are live. Oh, it went to the YouTube stream, but we had to hit go live on the YouTube stream. Hey, no worries. Not, no worry at all. Hey, everybody, for those of you who are just now doing a good to Remnant Radio, we were just joking about our technological problems that we were having. Uh, I, <laughs> I had a computer that uh, that crashed, that died. It's a Mac. Uh, it's a Mac. Well, That's the, power, crashed, the power cord, would, uh, it takes three computers and an ATEM to do what one but they work. did, but they work. Yes. Uh, the maybe. old PC Mac we're debate. 15 minutes late. Here we go. <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, welcome to Remnant Radio. If you're new, uh, this is a theology show where we interview pastors, teachers from different churches and denominations. We cover history, theology, and the gifts of the the Spirit today. We're talking about the history of John Wesley. I've got uh, Pastor Tom uh, on the other line. He's going to help introduce us to the history of uh, John Wesley. But before we dive into that discussion, uh, man, if you've been blessed by Remnant Radio, we'd encourage you to give. We're entirely crowdfunded. There are links in the description. Michael, what do we got to look forward to tomorrow? Tomorrow on our To Be Continued, which is our Gifts of the Spirit podcast on Wednesdays, uh, we're going to be talking about three specific spiritual gifts uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, highly debated ones, uh, the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and discernment of spirits. What are they? What do they look like practically in our lives? Uh, there's a lot of debate about these gifts. And so um, it, I think it's going to be a powerful, exciting uh, conversation. And uh, is Michael Miller joining us tomorrow? We don't even know. We will see. He, he's coming back from Hawaii. <laughs> if the cards are in our favor. I mean, the way <laughs> I mean, we're like, yeah, just see. we'll yeah. just see what happens. So anyway, so Wednesday, it'll be either me and Josh or, or possibly Michael Miller also. Uh, make sure you hit that subscribe button. And uh, but today we're excited about the conversation today with Pastor Tom. Tom, how are you doing over there? I'm doing well. Okay, Excellent. live from Austin, Texas. All right. Well, awesome. Well, I I went to the University of Texas, so it's got a sweet there you go place in my heart. I guess does that even make sense? Okay, so deep deep in the heart, deep in the heart of my heart. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tom, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into our discussion today about John Wesley. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I'm Tom Devaney. I'm an elder in the United Methodist Church. I've served uh, Bethany United Methodist Church in Austin, Texas. Uh, I've been here since 2001. And um, I've been doing this for almost 40 years uh, since I was first ordained and uh, been around. I'm not really sure what else you want to know at this point in time. Um I'm, this is a. So if you were in Austin, Michael. We're 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 way the heck out. We're about twenty miles from the campus. Yeah. Okay. That is pretty far out. Well. Yeah. So you are an expert in all things John Wesley. So <laughs> no, not, no. <laughs> not really, no. So if we, if I knew nothing about John Wesley and you were to teach me about him, give us an overview of who this guy is and why he was so significant. So John Wesley is, uh, he's the son of a Church of England pastor. 
uh, and he's born in 1703. He grows up in England in a, a parish household. Um, and um, really the story of his life is, is that growing up in that household and developing and the events that occurred around that, uh, goes to Oxford, uh, has an Oxford education, uh, becomes a priest in the Church of England. So, so he has the first part of his life is this kind of a deep, uh, profound kind of learning period. At the end of that time, there's a kind of a transition period where he leaves England for a while with his brother, Charles. Uh, he comes across the United States and is in uh, the colony of Georgia for a while before returning back home. And it's after he returns back home that things really kind of light off and things begin to happen in his life. He has what, what a lot of us would think of really as, as something akin to a conversion experience or a com confirming experience of his faith. And then after that kind of has a, a, an experience where he encounters the Holy Spirit in a very powerful way. And that's really what launches the ministry. He becomes what's often usually considered to be the founder of the Methodist movement, which is a uh, movement that begins in that period of time, uh, spreads across England, comes across the continent. It's worldwide now. Okay. So w when you talk about experiencing the Holy Spirit, I've heard some different stories. I mean, one was about him being on a boat with a bunch of Moravians and it like really, uh, I mean, there's this great okay. storm that was breaking up the ship. Yeah. I've also heard, you know, there's the famous story about his heart was strangely warmed when he was listening to somebody preaching. Can you kind of yeah. help us understand where these fall okay. into his history? So let me, yeah, let me tie that together for you. First off, you know, he, when he's growing up, he's really indoctrinated uh, into Christianity. His mother was a major uh, influence on him. His dad also was, was a, wrote quite a few books and so forth, but his mother was an influence. I mean, the guy, he's growing up, and by the time he's in what you and I would think of as like high school, he's fluent in Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and so uh, he has a lot of uh, education built into him before he ever gets to Oxford. Goes to Oxford, studies at Oxford. Uh, his brother Charles is about four years behind him and is going to come in there. Finishes at Oxford, he's ordained a deacon uh, and then begins to serve at church. He later returns to Oxford on a teaching fellowship. His brother is now a student there. They begin what's called the Holy Club. Um, Charles has some issues when he gets to Oxford with keeping his focus on what he's supposed to be doing. I, don't, I know freshmen never have that problem here, but he was having <laughs> some struggles with that. So they formed this, this kind of accountability group, uh, is what we would think of, where they would meet early in the morning. They would have a time for prayer with one another. Bible study. Uh, they would take communion together. Uh, they had some questions they would go through about uh, where they had been faithful to Christ and where they had not been and what they were going to do and how they were going to serve Christ during the day. They would do all those things, go back, clean up, get ready for the day, and then go about their day, both academically and also in terms of living their faith out in life. So this goes on through that time. Charles graduates, uh, and when he does, he and John both feel like they're called to something uh, more than just going to the straight to the parish ministry. So they decide that they're they're called to be missionaries to the Native Americans in the colonies. They get on a boat heading for the colony of Georgia, Savannah in particular. And that's where your story comes in. On the way over, they encounter a, a pretty major storm, what you know might be to us something more like a tropical storm or something like that. But anyway, it's it's enough that everybody on board the ship is afraid that they are all going to go down and die. Mm -hmm. And and they go below decks to get out of the you know the blowing water and everything and and down below decks they encounter a group of Moravians who are on the same ship going to the colonies and the Moravians are seated on the floor in this cabin they're seated in a circle uh, they're reading scripture uh, they're singing psalms they're praying uh, and, and you know Wesley is is just astounded at their courage and their faith 
and you know ask them you know, are, are, aren't you you know aren't you afraid that you're going to die and they said you know we're, we're not afraid of death for ourselves or for our children and and he's just that makes a huge impression on him now you got to put a pin in that story because he has that he comes across to georgia uh he and his brother arrive in savannah and and they really both fail pretty miserably at, here in the in the this on this continent um once they run out of the things that they have brought to trade uh, with the, in, the Native Americans to get them to come, uh, the Native Americans will have nothing to do with them. Uh, they are leading the, the parish of Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia, which incidentally is, is still there. Uh, and, and they pretty quickly alienate a lot of the people uh, in the community. They're uh, kind of arrogant and high-handed. And uh, Charles insists when he baptizes a baby on completely submersing it three times. Uh, <laughs> One of the mothers believes that he uh, gets Sorry, angry enough at it. It's funny. It's like that. It's yeah, like the, I mean, the, the uh, Eastern Orthodox video where you had that, yeah. the, the big Lebowski yeah. and like, dot, like dots him into the water. The Eastern he's Orthodox. Like, yeah. He's like counting when it's Three under the time. water, like count to five. Yeah. No. Oh, it's no. Too, too much, much Too far. Sorry. Too much. Too far. Well, it's, it's, yeah, I mean, it was bad enough that the one of the mothers at one point took a shot at him. Uh, and so uh, Charles only lasts a year before he goes home. John hangs in another year, and uh, during that time, he he kind of becomes romantically involved with a young woman, but that doesn't really go anywhere. She thinks it should. He doesn't. Uh, it becomes kind of an item of contention, and she is related to the governor of the colony. He finally gets so um, kind of angry at the whole thing that he refuses to serve communion to any of the governor's family. Now, remember, this is Church of England, so it's connected to the government. And and for doing that, uh, a warrant's issued for his arrest. He hops the ship back to England uh, to uh, to escape that. So so he arrives back in England, reconnects with his brother, and they're, they're both really at this point pretty convinced that they are, are failures. Uh, they're I mean they're failures personally. Uh, they're failures as pastors. Uh, they feel like they've let Christ down. Um, their personal journals at this point are, are really. Um, pretty dark. Uh, they're, they're questioning if they've ever really had faith. So, so as they're doing that, they, this, they reconnect with the Moravian community in London. Uh, that group, remember that they mm-hmm. met on the ships. Uh, so there's, there's someone who was on that ship. One of the guys is on that ship that, that happens to be back in London by this point, recognizes them, invites them to come with him to some of the Moravian meetings that they have, the evening meetings they have. So they start coming to this meeting and the, the incident you're talking about uh, is the society that meets at uh, Aldersgate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you go now, if you go, it's just out near uh, St. Peter's uh, uh, there, St. Paul's uh, cathedral there in London, uh, Aldersgate's just like a block and a half away from there. Mm. And um, they go that evening and uh, they begin attending that thing. And then uh, on May 24th, they're in this gathering and they're reading the ref, the preface of Martin Luther's commentary on the book to Romans. Yeah. Uh, so they're reading through this and on the part of that where uh, Luther talks about the, how faith changes the heart. Uh, God changes the heart of the believer through faith. And as they're reading through that, that that's kind of when Wesley has this, this moment, what's often called the, the heart strangely warm, because that's how he writes about it. You know, my, my heart was strangely warmed. Uh, and so that's the language he uses. And he, and he, he makes a comment in that. He, he says, you know, that he, he really believed that this is he's come to believe, put his whole trust and confidence in Christ. 
and to believe that uh, my sins, even mine, are forgiven. So now he's, I think he's about 36 at this point. Yeah. So you got a guy, I mean, I mean, you have to think about it. This is Oxford educated, smart, academic, uh, Church of England, priest of the church. Uh, but even know, before Oxford, wasn't he like, like, didn't he memorize chapters of the Psalms? Yes. Books of the oh, Bible? Yes. His mother had him memorize books yes. of the Bible, chapters, lengthy chapters of the Psalms at a time, yes. Greek and Hebrew, and then went to Oxford. Like he was, yes. he was, he, my boy was wicked smart before he ever started his education. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's kind of, when you, when you read about what, what Susanna did with them, you know, it's kind of like now, you know, thinking about what we do with our kids now, it's, it's, uh, talk to us about you know, that. Like, what, what so, else did Susanna do? Yeah. And, and he well, was, I he mean, was the son know, of a pastor I, as I well, was, right? Yeah. So, yeah, son of a pastor. Also, I'd yeah. always heard that Susanna, when she was, she had so many kids, was like eleven, I think, something like she that. Had nine she, living out of nineteen. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, she had she would like pray with a blanket over her face because she couldn't find any alone time. But anyway, tell us a little bit about Susanna and her influence on him and what well, she did with her kids. Well, I think Susanna was a, a huge influence because she was the one that worked with them on terms of teaching them how to pray, teaching them how to read scripture, understanding how to interpret scripture. I mean, she did all this. She had a a Bible study group that met in the kitchen and uh, of the house. And there's a kind of a, a reconstruction of that house in England now, but she met with them there and, you know, they would have, I mean, the place would be packed. People would just be packed in there, but she did that in the evenings, but then through the day, she would work with the kids through the day. Uh, so they learned, you know, like they learned Greek, they learned Hebrew, they learned English, they learned, you know, all, all the kind of skills that we think of as, things you would learn in school and, and probably at a higher level in school. Uh, she was teaching these kids like an elementary age. Um, that house, incidentally, there was a fire in that house at a certain point, which may or may not have been uh, intentionally set. There's some debate about whether it was an accidental fire or somebody actually tried to set the house on fire because um, John's father had preached some things that were unpopular apparently on, on some topics, but anyhow, he was the last one that was, I mean, he was on the second floor of the house. Everybody else had gotten out. He's upstairs. They're all afraid he's going to, you know, get burned up in the house. And so they make kind of a human pyramid outside the house to get him out of the second story window. And uh, his mother at that point kind of concluded that, well, obviously God has a special purpose for this kid. And so uh, I think she probably kind of communicated that to him in ways that parents do sometimes with their expectations of their children. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, he kind of, I think, absorbed some of that a little bit. And that, that may have been to his detriment in some ways, uh, giving him this sense of, you know, I'm, God has a special calling for me, not understanding that in, in a humble sense uh, necessarily. <laughs> I'm the best. But, uh, I've got a yeah. question about his his boat ride over with the uh, the, the Moravians. Moravians. I can't, yes. can't pronounce their Moravians, name right. Yeah. Moravians. Someone in the question yeah, asked, hey, who are the Moravians? Uh they were a group of people who were looking for religious liberties um, in the 16th century, um, and they found refuge in kind of the um, under the German uh, uh, protection of Count von Zinzendorf. Uh, so they yes. practiced a hundred years of prayer, um, yes. morning to night, evening prayer, unceasing, kind of yeah. unceasing, unceasing prayer, prayer for a hundred years. Yes. Now this is, this is what's really interesting, and I want to ask you about this. We I I've read things that sound more like myth than like. Like uh, like things I could authenticate that Wesley actually said about riding over with them on this boat. I, I remember reading things like 
I know not whether I know God, like listening to them pray. This guy who knows Greek, he knows Hebrew, he has lengthy passages uh, memorized in the Psalms, books of the Bible memorized of the New Testament. Um, and, and another one, he goes, my soul within me shook. Like it was just this this unique experience that he had. I don't know whether those are authentic quotes. I, I remember I, uh, uh, researching Wesley early on in my my Christian journey. Can you yeah. can you unpack some of that for me? Is there a lot of yeah, yeah. clear experience that he had on the boat ride over? Yeah, Josh, I don't know that I can, I don't know that I can say those quotes are exact, but his response, like I said, his response to that was, you know, he and Charles were scared to death, literally. Right. You know, they, they were deeply frightened and they encountered this group of people who had so much faith and so much confidence in that time. And of course that, you know, you, as it would for any of us, you know, it makes you reflect on how is it that here we are in the same situation and, and these people are filled with a confidence and a faith, and, and I am just filled with fear. Uh, and I think it made him aware of the fact that uh, his faith was uh, was not as powerful in his life as this group of Moravians' faith was. Mm. Uh, by comparing, I mean, he was in their presence and just was aware of that. Um, so, so, you know, when, when you put that on top of the, the experience in Savannah, where... Um, he really, you know, was was pretty intensely disliked by a lot of the people in the community. You know, when he's back in London years later, he, he, he really is. I mean, he's calling all that into question. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of, you know, I mean, he's got the academic. I mean, he's got the academics down. He knows I mean, intellectually and mentally. He knows all this stuff. But there's a difference between having it in your head and having it in your heart and your being. And right. so it. it so it's would you really say. All, OK, go ahead. Yes, go ahead. Would you say that's the difference between when he was failing so much versus when he was wildly successful Mm. was his encounter with God? Maybe he had an encounter with the Holy Spirit and just from then on, kind of like that D.L. Moody thing where, you know, D.L. Moody has this powerful encounter (laughs) where he experiences the filling of the Holy Spirit and he says, Lord, stay your hand. And, And so... Yeah. Wesley has this experience. His heart is strangely warmed. Is it from from thenceforth that Wesley is extremely <laughs> successful? And it and is it and is it because does he articulate as he was filled with the Holy Spirit? I mean, I, when I've read his accounts, it sounds like he thinks that's when he was saved. But but when, well, I think I think on the, on the May twenty fourth, what's often called that. I mean, that's often referred to as his Aldersgate experience. Yes, I, I think that's the night at which, for the first time, he comes to understand that that. You know, he he really has been forgiven by God's grace. Uh, I mean, mentally, he's known this all his life. But, you know, there's one thing that's the difference between knowing it in your head and, and knowing it in your heart and in your being. And that night, the reality of that kind of sinks into who he is and it becomes real. Now, people want to make that a one time like it's everything happens that night. That's really not accurate. So he's he's going to spend the next year or part of the next year, at least he's going to spend reflecting on that thinking about that, uh, you know, kind of meditating on, you know, how is, you know, how is it possible, you know, to have been in the church all this time to know all this stuff and yet not really be convinced and living it uh, in his life real well. And all that's going to lead up to uh, the new year's Eve of uh, the next year going into 1739. Uh, so he's going to gather with a watch night service that night. And and this time he's with a different Moravian society. He's with uh, the society on Fetter Lane. And, and they're going to be up to pray through the night. And about 3 a.m. in the morning, they're going to have what I, I think a lot of people nowadays would talk about as something like a baptism of the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, they're falling on the floor. 
they're singing psalms of praise. Uh, they're having this kind of powerful, overwhelming experience of the presence of the Holy Spirit. That kind of caps off, if you will, this, this whole kind of year uh, of transformation. And then, then coming out of Aldersgate and Fetter Lane, he's coming out of that. George Whitfield, who's a major evangel evangelist in England in this time. And uh, at this point, George Whitfield, Whitfield had been with him incidentally at Oxford. They had known him from Oxford. So Whitfield's going out and he's preaching. Uh, he's field preaching. Um, uh, this is Industrial Revolution uh, mm -hmm. kind of period of time in England. So uh, the folks that work in the factories and the folks that work in the mines aren't going to the churches. Um, they're too tired. They work too long. They don't have the nice clothes, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So Whitfield starts preaching at the factory gates, the mine gates. He's there at shift change and all this kind of stuff. So he begins pursuing Wesley to go and do this. And Wesley's first response is, no, he's not going to do that. Whitfield keeps working on him and working on him and working on him, working on him. Eventually, Wesley agrees. And so he goes and he, and he field preaches that day. And, and in doing that now, in the aftermath, remember, of Aldersgate and Fetters Lane, in the aftermath of that, he goes out and preaches that day. And there's about 300 people he baptizes that want to be baptized. Wow. Um, I mean, obviously, only, only something, something is huh? really different. I do what? I said only 300, huh? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I don't know if you if you've ever read any of Wesley's sermons. You know, they're they're pretty. Uh, they're intense. Needy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've heard him. I've read that he like his recommendation for getting people saved is preach ninety percent law and ten percent gospel. Yeah, yeah. My, my friend yeah. shared me a, a, a quote from John Wycliffe as a as a Calvinist talking about Wesley, and he goes, you know, is is Wesley going to be in heaven with us? And he goes, I wouldn't be able to know. He'll be so far ahead of me in the line, you know, close to the king of glory. I wouldn't, you know, I won't ever be able to know if he was there or not. Um, just oh, just man. speaking uh, as a guy who who speaks so ideologically different than Wesley would when it comes to soteriology and just giving him I don't know. the credit that, I mean, some of my favorite Calvinists today uh, are, are super pro-Wesley. <clears throat> I'm pretty yeah. much, Michael's trying to start a fight with me today. He's ready to do it. I yeah, I mean, <laughs> there was just this, this massive change, you know, in him over this period of time um, that is that is being affected in him uh, through God working in him through that time. So let me let me ask you some questions on this because we know that um, I mean he was an Anglican to the day he died. Um, the Moravians are in Germany, but they have like this this like super this super rich expression of prayer, um, and then next to that expression of prayer, they have many of them have like this pious Lutheran tradition. So not just Lutheranism typically, but this like mega pious Lutheran tradition. So amongst those three kind of influence, this um, very expressive Moravian worship, kind of a Lutheran underpinning from Germany and this Anglican tradition, it does, does Wesley, does he more identify as like this party line Anglican? Um, or is he just kind of like this smorgasbord of like theological diversity? He was smorgasbord. You see how I tied a, that German uh, word in? Yeah, he was an 18th century remnant radio. Yeah, just I think he might have been. <laughs> well, I'll tell you something. That's if he'd had way radio, too much of us. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go ahead. he would have been on the radio if he'd had it. I'm, I, I guarantee. Yeah, for um, sure. He, uh, you know, if you were going to ask him, his identity was very much of, as an Anglican priest in Church of England, and, and to the day he died, he understood himself that way. Um, 
So, I, I mean, in terms of his sense of identity, that's where it is. But if you actually look at his his theological work and his sermons, uh, Josh, he, he's pulling together different. He really is synthesizing a lot of different kinds of strands together. Uh, in Oxford, he's done a lot of reading of the early church uh, writings, the, the writings of the patriarchs, the first two, three hundred years of the church's history. He, he's pulling ideas from them forward. He, he's borrowing from the Moravians. He's borrowing, you know, from from the Calvinists. He's borrowing from. I mean, he's he's pulling ideas from different people. Um, he referred to himself as as kind of a practical theologian, is the the way the way we talk about it now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, he, he didn't, you know. There's no systematic theology. You know, the, there's no volume of systematics. There's no, you know, nothing like that. But but really, he's he's pulling all these kind of threads together. So smorgasbord, or uh, I don't know, you know, a, a kind of a piece of weaving, you know, or something like that. Uh, but he he draws a lot of different threads together. Uh, but himself, if you had asked him, he would have pretty clearly told you that he was a Church of England priest. Okay. And actually, to this day, if you go and you look in, in the Methodist, uh, like in our stuff, we have the Articles of Religion of the Methodist Church, the, the, the old articles that were have been included in the, our stuff since forever. Uh, they're, they're very similar to the Articles of Religion of the Church of England. Hmm. Okay, I'd, I'd like to... Uh, just continuing on Josh's question about theological influences, uh, specifically yeah. about George Whitfield. I know they, oh, yeah. they kind of fed off of each other. They had this partnership, but it, they were also very different. And um, yeah. I'm thinking, one, theologically with uh, with Wesley being more toward Arminian and uh, Whitfield being obviously Calvinist. And so, Calvinist. so one, you have that, which was a perpetual debate amongst them. Uh, so oh, I'd yeah. like to hear about that, but then Wait, also Calvinist Armenians. I know. Can you imagine? Theology? Can you imagine? Um, yeah. But secondly, I remember reading of Whitfield at the end of his life, commenting about the mega thousands. I was about to say millions, but thousands that he, you know, that God used him to lead to Christ versus Wesley, and he says that because of Wesley's way of discipling people and following up with people and Methodist, the the methods that they used, um, he says that compared to him, my converts are like a rope of sand. Like, yeah. they're just kind of spread to the wind, Dang. basically. So, uh, and I don't know yeah, if he Whit- made up that rope of sand comment, but he did use it. No, no, no. Actually, uh, Whit- Whitfield was a, uh, I mean, he was like a superstar, you know, he, he would have been like, nowadays, he would have been in the stadiums, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. Big, huge crowds came to him wherever he went. Uh, Wesley, uh, sometimes he drew crowds and sometimes he didn't. And sometimes the crowds he drew threw things at him and sometimes they received him well. Nice. Uh, you know, I mean, he, he was, uh, I, I think he was probably a little more confrontational at times than what he said than Whitfield was. But, you know, he preached like in the markets. He preached in the town squares and places mm-hmm. like that. Um, but, yes, it, t- toward the end of uh, the days there, uh, that actually there was a conversation between Whitfield and one of the uh, pastors of the Methodist movement, one of the lay pastors, lay preachers of the Methodist movement. And in, uh, it's actually recorded in, um, oh, I can't think of the man's name, but it's in his autobiography, it's in his biographical uh, sketch where he's talking to Whitfield and Whitfield's asking him, well, are you still you know, affiliated with Mr. Wesley? And he says, yes, I'm, I'm, I'm proud that I am still you know, preaching in, you know, with the, the Methodist societies and with the Methodist groups and all that. And Whitfield's comment was that, you know, yes, he says, you know, uh, Wesley's genius has been that he's built this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, structure is not the language he used, 
But Wesley built them together. Uh, and so they were surviving past Wesley, the Methodist societies, where, whereas Whitfield's followers were like a rope of sand and were being dispersed. And that actually, I mean, that is, a, it's actually a documented kind of exchange that took place. Um, so Whitfield, Whitfield, is, I, I think if you were listening to him today, Whitfield was the kind of person that, you know, you just, you really just love to listen to him preach. I mean, he was just eloquent. He's like Stephen Furtick with hardcore theology. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> oh my God. Why? I don't know. The, 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 Why did the, I go there? The live chat is going to take that oh a thousand gosh. different ways. There's just no way. I don't. There's no way that we're going to recover. Well, from I'm, that. Stephen Furtick no can one, communicate. That, that's what. That, I, that's my point. Yeah, that I've read of Whitfield that that, he, that if yeah. he just says, "Oh, that you want to get saved." Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> anyway, and, that that and, statement and Wesley, made no one. Wesley happy. wasn't. Yeah, Wesley <laughs> oh. didn't have that talent in the same way. Wesley's genius was in this kind organizing these people together uh, was where the genius of that was. So let me uh, let me ask you about like uh, manifestations. Hold on, hold on. We didn't get to the Calvinist Arminian piece. Okay, 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 okay. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. Can you follow up on that? And there's the little yeah, there's the soteriological battle. Boy, there's yeah, there's a there's a major discussion going on there between the two of them. And and at times, man, you read some of the letters. I mean, it's 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 heated. It's heated enough at times that actually they would stop talking to each other and stop communicating with each other for periods of time. So uh, they, they they respected each other, they loved each other, but they fought with each other and disagreed strongly with each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you had this big discussion about um, you know the ideas about predestination and those kinds of pieces, and Wesley struggled with that. Uh, and, and you have ideas about uh, freedom of will uh, in that that are being uh, debated back and forth. So uh, and uh, you have accusations being thrown that the Methodists are trying to earn their way into heaven and all this. So there's there's all these kind of uh, it's a huge debate uh, and very heated uh, between them on a number of things. Hmm. So I want to know about some of the manifestations in the 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 first this first great awakening when uh, Wesley comes on the scene, because we talk about things that, that were disputes between. Uh, Whitfield and Edwards wasn't this one of those things like didn't didn't he carry over some of the kind of Moravians manifestations kind of followed with him is that true with Whitfield yeah w- with uh, with Wesley uh, some with of those Wesley, Mor- Moravian those the manifestations that were common amongst their people seemed to at least in some measure uh, appear in Wesley's mi- meetings and I thought that that was some yes. kind of confrontation between Whitfield and Wesley that they were they they disagreed on on these things yeah at times there was some disagreement around that uh, and uh, the I'm trying to think of the language what was it excessive enthusiasm I think is kind of the, the language of the day mm-hmm. can you can you unpack times. what those manifestations looked like what, what did that oh I mean you know the things that we would <laughs> think I mean there would them? be no, no, not on the air. Sorry, I have, I have no self control. Michael is in a he is in a yeah, mute he's, today. He's, can we mute hit? Can we mute? Yeah, him? we'll mute. Uh, we'll mute him. Uh, I mean, <laughs> you know, the whole thing about that. I mean, there were you know people were being what we would talk about in this day. You know, people would be you know knocked down in the spirit. Uh, people would be on the floor. People would be crying out. Uh, and I suspect some of that uh, they would talk about crying out. I think we would hear that more as what's now when they talk about speaking in tongues. But, but, you know, you had those kinds of things going on. Uh, there were uh, people would receive healing uh, in these gatherings. Uh, and so those various kinds of things would happen. Uh, and sometimes accusations were leveled against the Methodists, those Methodist groups, that um, they were becoming, uh, I mean, they would see it kind of as, as a, 
overly emotional experience, which, you know, if you remember you're in England, um, you can take that as you wish, but, you know, and this time in England, you know, great displays of emotion were, were not really received well. Uh, so, uh, but yes, those actually accusations were made against the Methodists and actually Wesley at times, he, he writes to some of his, uh, the leaders of some of his societies and cautions them, uh, that, you know, y'all, you need to be careful about this because it's becoming a deterrent, uh, to people uh, joining together with us and people are being, basically people are being turned off by it or scared away by it. Hmm. So and that was, okay. that was one of those markers that Edwards talked about in judging, Manifestations, judging yeah. revivals of the we, fruit that remains. We, we did talk- an episode on that. Look up manifestations. Yeah. Uh, what do we call it? Uh, Jonathan Ed- Jonathan Edwards episode a couple weeks ago. Yeah, judging modern manifestations yeah. with Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and then talk to us about um, that. Revival culture probably isn't the right phrase, but just that sense of like welcoming and openness to the Holy Spirit and manifestations. How has that continued as a legacy within? Uh, the Methodist denomination or not continued? What does that look like? <laughs> what a question. Whoa. Now you're really walking into a big can of worms. Well, I mean, yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> that's what, that's I, actually, I, I'm, I'm walking you into it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, I, it, it really, I mean, you know, it was debated back then. It's still, stuff like that's still being debated now, not only within the Methodist church, but among denominations, <laughs> you have different kinds of viewpoints. Uh, there are uh, folks who teach uh, more of a cessationist kind of, uh, you know, attitude that, you know, the spirit doesn't do these things anymore. Uh, Wesley would disagree with that pretty strongly. Uh, and, uh, you know, through, through all of his ministry, uh, you know, he, he was seeing, you know, the moving and the working of the spirit and, and claiming that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that really was part of him. But, but as what happens in the church, as uh, you know, as it time goes on, you know, it, it, it tends, if we're not careful, uh, you know, we tend to shift back to that more intellectual kind of model. And uh, I think at times, you know, it's seen as uh, unsophisticated. I don't know what the right word is um, to to be uh, moved and, and engaged with the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, you know, within the church at times, it's, it's been more or less um, accepted. Uh, we've had some different kinds of movements over the years. If, if you're, you know, the Methodist church is not, if anything, you know, we've had groups leave, groups come back, groups had divisions, reunions, all that. But, uh, you know, you, you have a pretty large group of Methodists that leave at one point that, that become part of the assemblies of God churches, uh, because, uh, they're feeling like the Methodist church is not affirming, uh, the work of the spirit in the way that they should be. Uh, today you have Methodist churches all across the spectrum. Some of them that are much more engaged in, in what we would think of as a Pentecostal kind of model. And you have some that are all the way on the other end that are, that are pretty highly opposed to that. Uh, so he put that in place and I, I, I suspect that he would probably be not really happy about, um, some of the ways that's being handled now. So let me, um, let me kind of circle back around since we're talking about emotionalism. Let's talk about some of uh, John's relationships. You said that earlier on in Georgia, there was a girl he was kind of romantically involved with. She goes and gets married. So he kind of, uh, because of the drama that he actually causes, he gets kicked out. Yeah. So he goes, he, yeah. he comes back home, uh, has right. this encounter with the Moravian, some of these stuff. Does he ever get back into a relationship? Does he ever marry? Uh, what, what happens with his his emotional well, state moving forward well 
that's 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 interesting. You know, now I'm gonna say that his his brother Charles marries and and has a wonderful marriage, and they have children, and those kids you know continue in the church. And you know, Charles writes I don't remember how many pieces of music in his lifetime, but one of his children carries that, one of his sons carries that tradition on. Mm. Uh, John does get married later. Uh, let's see, it's in, uh, what, 1751, I think, is when it happens. Anyway, he does get married. Uh, he, he's really, he doesn't do too well at it. Uh, they're, they're separated after about four years or so. And they, they although, you know, they, they remain married at that time, they're separated, and they don't really have that much to do with each other. Uh, so uh, the impression I get, it, you know, from kind of reading through this is that he, he really was not very successful at that kind of a personal relationship, that that really was not there. There's no children out of that marriage. Um, so, um, you know, I, I don't get the impression that he really um, did that very well in his life. Uh, yeah, I read at one point that uh, with his, I guess, I mean, he was only he was married once, right? Yes. Yeah. So that with his wife, he he kind of took the attitude of like, I've traveled this much and preached this much before I was married, and that shouldn't change when I get married. I'm going to do all the same stuff. Like it, when I yes. read the quote, I thought your attitude is basically I'm going to live like a single guy, a monogamous single guy, and my wife can tag along, which is predictable yeah. how that turned out. So yeah, he, he's he is. If anything, he is extremely focused. Uh, I mean, and we're, I'm extremely focused. Uh, and, uh, and yeah, he, I, I don't think he was willing to do the things it takes to have uh, a really strong marriage. And, you know, and like I say, predictably that, you know, if, if you don't do the work of having a good marriage, you don't have a good marriage. Have, so yeah. did, did him and his wife split? Did, did they just die? Unhappy? They separated. They separated. They separated. Uh, and, uh, but they remained married until, and I think she, pre, yeah, she predeceased him. She died before he did. Yeah. But, Bummer. Uh, hmm. yeah. Did that, uh, did that hamper, I mean, in terms of his ministry where people, was that a cloud over his ministry or were people like, Hey, this, you know, who cares? This is great preaching. I mean, like what was their attitude? Uh, you know, Michael, I don't, I don't know that I can answer that. I don't know that I've ever read, uh, anybody making a whole lot of comment about that. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it seemed to be something that people were aware of, uh, in different places, but, um, that did not seem to be a huge factor. And okay. I, I'm, yeah. So I've got a question about the, the Methodist movement and its, its growth in, in Europe versus the States here, because, uh, when I was, my mom being a homeschooled kid, uh, we, we did, uh, church history quite a bit growing up as kids uh, as part of our history credit. We did a lot of church history. And one of the things that we talked about was Francis Asbury, who is accredited for, uh, I guess the, he's, he is called in some traditions, the father of the American Methodist movement that he is like his circuit riding horse preaching six times a day, ride to the next city, preach again. Like they tied him down to his horse so they could just ride to the next city and preach ridiculous stories. Um, but but if he's the father of the American Methodist movement, does that make George, like did, did Methodism just kind of explode in the UK, um, in Europe, or is that kind of an, the predominance of it seems like it's here. I, mean, I wouldn't say so much in Europe. It, it, it really did explode in, in the UK. Okay. Um, you know, as Wesley's doing this, of course, you know, these people, he, he's still preaching these people. They're coming, they're, you know, they're coming to Christ right and left. Uh, you know, and he's got this huge thing, but but they're not going to go to the Anglican church because that, they're not going there anyway. Mm. Uh, and, they, and they're still not able. I mean, they don't have the clothes. They don't have the wherewithal to do that. So 
he starts kind of building them into these uh, small groups, uh, class meetings. Uh, a larger gathering of class meetings would be a society. And really, in a lot of ways, the society meetings were more what we would think of as a like a church service or a worship service. Uh, and then they're down into band meetings on the far, even below that. So you have these different groups coming together and he begins to build them. And uh, the, the movement takes off across England like crazy. He's using them. In addition to his own preaching, he's utilizing a lot of lay people who are also speaking and leading these groups. So there's this really powerful um, piece of, of empowering, you know, lay people, non-clergy people mm-hmm. to lead these different groups. And, uh, and it's going to, I mean, it's, it's going to be huge in England. They're going to build schools. They're going to build hospitals. They're going to build orphanages. Uh, some people have said that uh, it was the, the Methodist movement is the reason there was not the kind of revolt in England that you saw in other parts of Europe, because it provided some of the infrastructure and undergirding that people needed in their lives uh, during that time of the industrial revolution. Hmm. But it's like, a, I mean, some crazy number, like, you know, almost a third of the population is, is involved in one of these Methodist groups uh, at a certain point in the UK. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it, it just blew up there. And then, of course, what happened was people that were in those Methodist movements were migrating across to the colonies because, you know, this is a, a British colony. So that's that's why there's that pipeline of people that are coming over here who are connected to Methodism. Hmm. This may be over... Uh, this may be overly simplistic, but would it be fair to say that if you're really lo- loyal to England, you're a member of the Church of England, and if you're not a member of the Church of England, you're Methodist, and if you're not loyal to the Church of England, let's get over to America, and that's why it blew up over here? Is that overly simplistic? Uh, that, that's overly simplistic. Yeah. It really is, Josh. I mean, yeah. I, I think, yeah. That's why I asked the I mean, question. I, 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 it's logical. Sure. It's logical, but but I don't I don't know that in, in actual dynamics, I don't know that it worked that way. Uh, because people were coming over here, both Church of England and I mean, people were coming over here for you know financial reasons, reasons. Yeah. religious reasons. So, so when did they become uh, a denomination? Where? When, when did? Uh, where? I uh, hear. Yeah, Methodism. that's a good question. Methodism. Like, when did it stop? I mean, yeah. when did he stop so being happened? Anglican? Well, no, he didn't stop. Being oh, Anglican. he does. A dumb question. Yeah, uh, we we, we discussed doesn't. that earlier, but but I guess they're not Anglican now, are they? Are no. They? So what happened? So no, no, they're not. I mean, they're not Church of England. <laughs> Uh, so what happens is Wesley, when Wesley sends Francis Asbury over, you know, we need to hear he, he about sends shortly. him over. Yeah, you know he's going to send him over uh, to the states, and he's he's basically going to do that, and and then later he's going to ordain Thomas Coke to come over, and it's when he ordains uh, Coke and and a couple of other folks in that time uh, that that's when the Church of England really gets mad at him for all this. They put up with him so far, but at that point they get mad at him. And it's a kind of a debatable point, and I don't know that I know enough to know all the, the fine points of church law in the Church of England as to whether he was actually excommunicated or not. But at that point, he was not allowed to preach anymore at the church of any Church of England. So, um, you know, he could preach in the fields. He could actually preach in the cemetery at his the parish he grew up in because his family owned that property. Um, but, you know, he was kind of excluded at that point. Hmm. So. He refuses mm-hmm. to let the Methodists in England leave the Church of England. He he will not hear of it. Uh, he, mm-hmm. No, we're we're we are a renewal movement in the Church of England. He won't hear of it. But when he dies in 1791, when he dies, within a very short period of time, the Methodists in England separate from the Church of England. Mm-hmm. Now, prior to that, what's happened in the U.S. is the the, the Methodists in the U.S. have organized, and, and they actually organized on Christmas Eve of 1784. That's their, their organizing conference. Um, 
but they organize as, as a separate animal from what's going on in the UK. So the British Methodist Church and the Methodist Episcopal Church that organizes in the colonies are different things. You know, are they still different not, things? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so uh, they're separate from each other. And uh, we, we started organizing here, like I said, in 1784. And the structure that was built into the Methodist uh, church here uh, is pretty reflective of the national government kind of structure. Uh, you know, we have a judicial branch. We have a legislative branch. We have an executive branch. We don't always do it well, but then neither does the national government. So, you know, what can I say? Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, but, but yeah, there's that kind of reflection because uh, people sometimes forget in the, in the, in this period of time, you know, you're really talking about a fairly small population. These folks all know each other and they're all talking to each other. Okay. Uh, so they're sharing ideas. Hey, I want to come but back the, to, okay, no, yeah, go no, ahead. Well, Were you about to, okay. No, I was just saying, so that, you know, they're, they've, they kind of, or, when they actually organized, uh, they, they did it on kind of separate tracks. Right. Okay. Hey, I want to come back to a little bit earlier. You mentioned Francis Asbury, and I'm going to ask two questions in one, okay? Because I know these were two key relationships. One was Francis Asbury, and of course, there's Asbury Seminary with Craig Keener, who's been on the show before. Uh, So that's a big name, big relationship. And I feel like with Charles Wesley, his brother, we've just grazed the surface. I'd love for you to talk about the importance of these two men as it relates to John Wesley. Well, I mean, Asbury is 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 huge, especially in the American church. I mean, he's he's one of Wesley's key people in England, and he, and he sends them over here, you know, to to get folks here organized and provide you know, pastoral care for the people here in the colonies. And and Asbury, I mean, all you all the stuff you read about him is, I mean, he 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 kind of in a lot of ways is very similar to Wesley in this kind of driven and and drivenness and focus. And, and yes, I mean, there are stories about him, you know writing for hours and hours and hours and hours and, you know, all those stories about him. Uh, he, he's going to oversee uh, a huge expansion of the Methodist movement in the, in, in what's now the United States and the colonies. Uh, and so he's going to be hu- a huge piece in that. Um, so he, he's, yeah. And so Thomas Koch was, the, uh, you know, ordained and sent over and, you know, he's, he's like, you know, a, another big figure in the history and, mm-hmm. If you know the Methodist publishing house for a long time uh, was Cokes Ferry, which is a merger of their two last names. So hmm. uh, that's kind of a, a reflection of the importance that those two gentlemen had. Charles Wesley is is probably um, kind of coming into his own in some ways. I think historically, he was not John's. Uh, he wasn't driven in the way that John was. Uh, didn't have that kind of extreme focus that John did. He he was the the hymn writer. Uh, and remember that in this time, hymns were the words, uh, the musics were tunes, but he wrote the hymns, he wrote the words, but he was also a musician. And uh, the first preaching house in Methodism was called the, the New Room, and it was it's in Bristol, still there, and you can go there. Uh, and, and that was where Charles actually was kind of, that was his home base. And he preached there on a, on a regular kind of basis. In fact, there was a, a riot at one point in Bristol, and Charles is pretty much between labor and, and the factory owners. And Charles is credited with being the one that kind of settled that down. But Charles was much more of a, a musician. Uh, you know, he was married. He was, uh, had children. I mean, he was a more relationally um, skilled person than his brother, John. But he wasn't the preacher that his brother was. But he writes these great hymns. And 
a lot of times in the early Methodist movement, you know, when you're dealing with folks that uh, are working in mines and working in factories, uh, the hymns become a teaching instrument. So the, the lyrics of these hymns are a lot of times are what would teach different aspects uh, of theology and understanding to the people as they sang them. And Methodists were, were I mean, were, were, I mean, well, they were famous for early on. We're, we're not so good at it now as we were then, but you know, they were famous for singing, you know, and, and their singing would be, you know, so loud that it would disturb the neighbors. Uh, and so, um, you know, this was very much a part of their, their culture and tradition. Uh, and the music was was a huge piece of that. Hmm. So Charles is kind of coming back, you know, now as and 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 then you know you have this kind of mirror thing going on because John has this experience at Aldersgate. Um, Charles has a pretty powerful experience uh, with that same society. Uh, you know, Charles is there that night in Fetter Lane. Uh, so a lot of these kind of spiritual experiences that these two gentlemen are going through are, are kind of parallel track in some ways, but their personalities are very different. Um, so, uh, and so they, they express them in different kinds of ways. John's the, the forceful preacher, leader, uh, organizer, and, and Charles is writing these hymns um, by the hundreds, by the hundreds. Hmm. Well, that's great, man. So we're, we're coming to uh, this part of the show where we, we're, we're wrapping up. We're going to toss it over to Michael. And then, uh, Tom, after I'm, I toss it to Michael, I'm going to toss it over to you and ask you to give some of your closing thoughts. And and for those of you who are like, oh, man, we, we didn't talk about Wesleyan Arminianism. We didn't talk about Wesleyan perfectionism. We didn't talk about all the, the isms and doctrines that come out of the Methodist movement. We have shows coming down the pipe uh, in the next couple of weeks and months uh, that we intend to tackle some of those things. So uh, all in good time. I think this episode helped us get a, a kind of a, a 30,000 foot view of the life of Jonathan, uh, Jonathan, John Wesley. Uh, we're going to finally get yeah. there. Jonathan Edwards, not not the same yeah, guy. Don't get, uh, yeah, yeah, don't get him confused. Uh, uh, no. But this this is a this is a great uh, a great time that we do this little thing that we do the golden nuggets, Tom. So I'm going to toss it over to Michael. He's going to give me like his closing thought. That one thing he wants people to walk away with, remembering, thinking about. I'm going to ask you to do that same thing when looking at the life of uh, 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 John Wesley. What was that one takeaway moment that you want people thinking about? I'll start here with Michael. Yeah, yeah. And before I share, I just. Uh, one of the episodes uh, that is coming up about John, we have another John Wesley coming up in right. July, uh, an episode about John Wesley's sermons. Dr. Billy Abraham from uh, Southern Methodist University uh, is wow. coming on the show, and he has a three-volume set dedicated to John Wesley's sermons. It's going to be a fascinating episode. So I'm sure all your questions about Christian perfectionism can be answered <laughs> there. Um, but yeah, a, a closing thought. I think... Uh, to me, what's inspiring about John Wesley's life is uh, is actually the failure <laughs> uh, that that the beginning of his life. I mean, he's he literally goes to America as a missionary and gets turned back. And, and I mean, it's just like one thing after another to the point where he's just like, is anything like, do I even have faith? I mean, questioning so much. And I just. I look at the people of God. You've got Moses spending 40 years in the wilderness. You've, uh, you've got Paul spending some time in Arabia, those sort of unknown, hidden years. You, uh, uh, you have this just uh, recurring theme in the Scripture, it, even corporately with Israel being away in Egypt, uh, of this, these sort of hidden years, years of obscurity, years of failure and hardship, and then, bam, it turns for him. And I just think that's, uh, that's so important because— when I look in the scripture and I and I contrast, for instance, uh, King David and King Saul, 
where Saul is exalted quickly, and uh, he falls quickly. And mm-hmm. Samuel says to him, how is it that you who were once small in your eyes, now you think you're all that? You know, And uh, so he actually did start out humble, but the fast exaltation was not good for him. David, in contrast, is anointed probably at age like 16, 17. He doesn't really become king over all Israel until he's age 30. And, uh, and so you have this long wilderness season. And I just think that's so important. I want to encourage some of our viewers that maybe you feel like you've been in that period of obscurity and failure. And that's such an important part of our sanctification to set us up for what God wants to do. And I don't think Wesley could have accomplished the things that he did without that period of failure and obscurity. That's good. Yeah, Michael, uh, that, that's great. Yeah, I would agree with that completely. Um, I, you know, he, he starts off with this you know, tremendous academic background, and he's convinced that he knows all this stuff and everything. And I think it, it took that failure to you know, get him down to the level of, of admitting his actual need for God yeah, uh, and good. for you know, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And that, that really, it was, it was at that point that he got away from being religious you know, on his own, basically, to being religious uh, in terms of being in a relationship with the living God and having, you know, be, being actually connected with God in the life of God. And that made all the difference uh, mm-hmm. in his life. So that that's what peace and out of that, you know, I mean, this whole thing, it's actually, it's not perfectionism. It's Christian perfection, um, uh, you know, to, which literally his definition is that the love of God so fills your heart, there's no room for anything else. Uh, and so, you know, this, this Christian perfection, uh, and he considered that one of his great doctrines, but, but a piece that he brought across from the Arminians that maybe gets lost in some of this is the need, need to be in relationship with other people as well. These small groups that he put together. So he said, you know, there's no holiness, apart from social holiness, meaning being connected with other people in these small groups, uh, being in relation with each other, because he knew he had learned that on his own, he could become arrogant and very self-serving and walk away from God. And he knew that he needed other people to kind of keep him in that connection. So um, now, so there's this kind of relational piece there about being connected to one another, but the powerful part of it is this learning that, you know, religion is, it's, and theology is not just ideology, uh, you know, this, this is life. This is living. Mm-hmm. This is my life connecting with God's life. Uh, and, and the, you know, the indwelling of God in my life and, and, uh, you know, inviting God to come in and, and actually live in and rule in my life. And that's a, that's a very different thing than just kind of having a, ideas in your head. Uh, so it was that, that time of being, you know, brought low was what opened him up to the indwelling of the Holy spirit. And I think, you do hear that story repeated over and over and over and over. And, um, you know, for, for many, 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 many of us, that, that is the story of our faith journey that you know, we needed to, at some point we had to get, you know, we had to get run down to the point of, of being able to say, I can't do this. Mm-hmm. this and this is not about me. This can't be about Amen. me. Uh, and, and it's only at that point that we were really open to what God was wanting to do with Amen. us. I mean, I think one of the things that I that I would want you to walk away thinking about and remembering in this interview is that the guys that that walk that worked alongside of Wesley that were ideologically different than him, guys like Edwards, guys like uh, George Whitfield, that were looking on the inside and they came from different theological camps. They would acknowledge the fruit that remains. They acknowledge mm-hmm. the discipleship. They acknowledge the evangelism. They they acknowledge an emotional an emotionalism that was actually rooted in a knowledge of God and not an emotional emotionalism for emotionalism's sake mm-hmm. um, yes. and an authentic experience with the Holy Spirit. So, so this is a group of people that are like, Hey, 
we're loving God right, we're loving people right, we're we're preaching the gospel, we're making disciples, and it's with all of us. It's our heart, mind, soul, and strength as we're involved in this. And I think, if anything, that that's just like a glimmer of hope in that there are these seasons throughout church history where the church just gets it. And God just uses broken people to display, like, the, dude, look, look what this could look like. Look, it's it's yes. real discipleship. It's real emotion. That's that's mm-hmm. a beautiful emotion. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not stirring up for nothingness, but it's it's something that's that's authentic and real. Um, yeah. And I think that's that's encouraging, just to know that there are times in history when the church gets it, um, mm-hmm. when when the Holy Spirit raises up this people for Himself that's holy and set apart and different, and that's commendable and that ought to be sought and uh, and into pit theology against emotion or to pit experience against evangelism uh, is, is a thing that we don't need to do. We can actually say holistically, we're, we're holistic beings and we we can experience and encounter God in all of these areas that he's called us to. And I think that's encouraging. Um, and, and for those of you who are watching, um, Man, I thank you so much for following with us all the way up into this point of the interview. I definitely want to have Pastor Tom come back on the show. So if you've liked this interview, uh, man, the, all thanks goes yeah. to BJ Allen Lots uh, of po- for setting positive this up. comments in who, the uh, in the chat section. Yeah. Tom, I think you uh, underrated yourself in Wesley knowledge. You know everything oh. about John Wesley. <laughs> <laughs> when you get Doctor Abraham on, he really does know everything. He okay. is brilliant. <laughs> Amazing and and passionate. Awesome. Um, and where's yeah. his and accent way, I think from? He's, not, uh, his, he's from Ireland. Ireland. I can tell you. And, I, I, and I think phone. he's. Uh, I think he's in the process of moving. What on SMU. earth was that? <laughs> I'm so sorry, <laughs> Pastor Tom. I'm. I have to scold Michael publicly. Stop doing impressions. You sounded like. <laughs> An, an Indian guy. Irish. That was hor- yeah, that was that was a decent the hardest time about my impression. Just don't do but them. All you just, you so just got your Strombat impression that bro, you do twenty four seven. I can do an Indian accent too. Yeah, but that was not an Dude, Irish accent. This is going bro. bad. That was horrible. <laughs> I'm so sorry. Just, sorry. Just, just, let Dr., just, just let Doctor Abraham do it himself. Yeah, yeah let, going let, off the rails. So far much off more. the rails. Okay, yeah. here we go. He's awesome. Um, Thank you for joining us. <laughs> Subscribe. <laughs> Patreon tomorrow. We're yeah. talking about words of knowledge, words of wisdom, discernment of spirits. Did I miss anything, Josh? No, that's it. You so got a Kingdom of the Colts thing coming up on Kingdom Saturday. Kingdom of the Colts thing coming up on Saturday. Book we're, club. We're doing the uh, not the new. What's the the the, the cult group that all the uh, celebrities are in? The science, Scientology. Scientology oh, okay. is the chapter we're going through. Uh, so we're reading. Uh, uh, the book from uh, Dr. Not Dr. I was going to give my Dr. Tatter, Walter Martin. Uh, we're reading his Kingdom of the Cults book. We're reading just that chapter on Scientology. It's actually a really, really cool chapter. We're going to discuss yeah. it. 30 of us, 40 of us get together and discuss it on Patreon. So uh, check out those links in the description. You can get that, that link there on Patreon. Um, so thank you so much for tuning in, guys. We will see you tomorrow, 4 p.m. Central Standard Time. And Pastor Tom, if you would stay on with us just for a few more minutes uh, after we sign off. See you guys. Want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the 
promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classroom. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio.